Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Mr. Mr. Deputy Speaker. In the past half century, just a dozen men they've all been men, have delivered a budget to the House of Commons. Good for charge bears and good for the country. I commend it to the House. Some were more memorable than others. A politician presenting his first budget is rather like a lion tamer trying out his act for the first time. Some unravelled quicker than you can say hot sausage rolls. And this is a budget for the future and I have one further announcement. While others contained major economic, financial and political reforms which have lasted decades. Because of the steps we took, opposed by the party opposite. But who knows what's going to be in it? I commend to the House a budget that puts the next generation first. Who controls the master spreadsheet and what's really in the red box? to build a Britain that we can all be proud of. I commend this statement to the House. Welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is How to Build a Budget. This week, Rishi Sunak, the new Chancellor, will deliver his first budget, juggling the dual pressures of trying to deliver on the Conservative election manifesto while also reassuring the country that the government is prepared to deal with coronavirus. To understand the process and seek some last-minute advice for the Chancellor, I've been speaking to those who have been there in the Treasury before, from Norman Lamont, who delivered three budgets in the 1990s, to George Osborne, who managed eight, plus Ed Balls, who spent a decade helping Gordon Brown write his new Labour budget, but his shadow Chancellor never managed to deliver his own, Plus, Poppy Trowbridge, a former journalist turned spin doctor for Philip Hammond, explaining how she sold three budgets to those pesky journalists. Despite the talk of last-minute rewriting to respond to the latest events, in reality, each budget takes months to plan. When George Osborne delivered his emergency budget in 2010, it had been years in the making. Well, in many ways, the first budget 
when you've been shadow chancellor is easy because you've had years to think about it. I was shadow chancellor for five years and I couldn't wait to put into practice many of the ideas we developed, including things relatively recently to deal with the financial crisis. No sooner is one budget finished than work starts on the next one, as Norman Lamont explains. I think it's rather like the fourth road bridge, <laughs> the fourth bridge road. When you finish one year painting it, you start painting it again. And I certainly remember after each budget, I would think about uh, the next year's budget in very, very general terms. Ed Balls recalls that Gordon Brown was even more demanding. I used to be really kind of exhausted after very many months and just kind of want to collapse and just kind of the kind of that exhausted gloom every year, the day after, the day after the budget, this call would come through to my office, the Chancellor wants to see you. And I'd go around to Gordon's room and he'd say, what do you think about next year? <laughs> and I'd say, what? He said, no, no, we should start planning. And I would say, Gordon, we have 363 days before the next budget. These days, budgets are often more about the politics than the economics. Chancellors no longer set interest rates from the dispatch box. That's now done by the Bank of England. The markets are now global, so are not hanging on the Chancellor's every word. But what goes into the budget? There are the headline measures. Will taxes rise or fall with cigarettes or alcohol become more expensive? And then there's a spending. Who will reap the rewards? It all happens in the scorecard, a closely guarded spreadsheet which tallies up all of the spending commitments and all of the tax rises to help balance the books. George Osborne again. The scorecard is a single spreadsheet which has the whole budget on it. And it's never published. It's only an internal document that the Treasury and the Chancellor uses basically to make sure the whole thing adds up. It's very closely guarded. It's, it's about the most secret document in the Treasury. And actually, the, uh, the Chancellor is the person who sees the internal document and then makes a decision about whether their Chief Secretary sees it, whether the Prime Minister sees it and all sorts of other people. And the reason for that is, if you're suddenly told you've got a load of money to spend early on in the budget process, it tends to be the case that everyone rushes in, number 10. This is why it needs to be kept secret, as Poppy Trowbridge, Philip Hammond's former media special advisor, explains. There is a very, very small group within the Treasury that actually manage and control it. And obviously, in our time, we kept very, very tight control over who could see it. And once that's closed, that's it. Can't be any mistakes. It has to add up because we've signed off the policies. By that point, number 10 have seen it and essentially it's ready to go to the printers. For Ed Balls, the scorecard process meant scrutinising every measure, no matter how small. When we introduced hard fiscal rules in 1997, we said we're going to stick with this rule every year for the next five, ten years over the economic cycle, we said. What that meant was that if the tax revenues weren't coming in, but you'd made a commitment that the budget was going to be in balance, that meant you either had to raise some tax or cut some spending. And uh, we introduced a set of tables. To begin with, they were called the Fry Tables after my um, private secretary called Julie Fry. And they became the, the budget tables. And there would be loads and loads of pages of spreadsheet. But it was basically, we would plug in what we wanted to do You'd plug in the economic forecast, you'd plug in the tax forecast, the, the spending forecast from the social security side, and then see 
was the residual meeting your fiscal rules or breaking them? And if they're breaking them, you have to go back and change one of the, the measures. And we would have these, a meeting, it was the budget starters meeting, which, which we would do every week for six months before the budget. So from a very early stage, where there'd be this very long list of measures and you'd go through each one, the expert would be there and you'd say, what is it? Why would we do it? What would the effect be? How much money is it? And what you realize through that process is people chuck in these things to tidy up the tax system. If it's raising you small amounts of money and the distributional effects are unclear and has the potential to be really controversial, you just say, well, really sorry, we're not doing that one. And you just go down the list and each one, yes, no, maybe more work. Really? <laughs> are you joking? In 2012, this process famously failed. Two weeks before Budget Day, George Osborne went to Washington instead of staying in the Treasury. And when he delivered his budget, it contained a number of small tax changes, just tidying up anomalies, which Treasury veterans recognised as being familiar ideas from officials, which were always rejected on political grounds until now. Ed Balls again. To be honest, it's tough for George Osborne because he was newest Chancellor. They hadn't been in government for a long time. They needed the money. The deficit wasn't coming down. But if he and his guys had been properly on it, the two weeks before, they'd have been saying, sorry, you want us to put a tax on new caravans, which will potentially put out of business a whole factory in Hull. I think there's one in Suffolk. You're actually saying, you're saying that you want us to discriminate against heated sausage rolls and Cornish pasties for some arcane reason, which will bring in us small amounts of money and it'll be a riot. Really? I think for them it was quite a big learning experience. The tidying up exercise of applying VAT to hot baked goods in the same way as cooked food in restaurants might have seemed innocuous in a budget meeting. But dubbed the pasty tax, it became the dominant row over what became known as the omni-shambles budget. George Osborne again. Well, I knew that I had a problem when I turned up and Marie Antoinette was standing outside the Treasury handing out pasties. Uh, let them eat pasties. Uh, do you know, if, uh, it, I mean, it, it was kind of politically challenging. There's no doubt about that. But the real problem was the economy wasn't doing very well in 2012. That's what I was focused on. Labour sought to exploit it with a visit to Greg's, with Ed Miliband and Rachel Reeves joining the photo call with Ed Balls, who'd offered to buy snacks for the campaign team too. Everybody was up for it. So we go in with this TV camera, me and Ed and uh, Rachel Reeves, and I'd say, can we have um, eight sausage rolls all in separate banks? Look, anybody who's ever bought a sausage roll from Greg's while on the motorway knows you've got kids in the back. They need a separate bag or else the crumbs go everywhere. So I think it showed an inside knowledge of sausage roll ordering, but people were a bit taken aback because Ed Miliband, who I'm not sure if he's ordered that many good sausage rolls, returned to me <laughs> and said, why do you want eight? And it was kind of, and I became the mass sausage roll consumer. There's also the small matter of keeping number 10 happy. Having seen what happened during the Blair Brown years, when even the Prime Minister didn't always know what was coming in the budget, George Osborne made sure he kept not just his boss in the loop, but his coalition partners too. For me, it was always a team effort. So David Cameron had the information available that I had. Interestingly, if people always thought that Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander didn't know what was going on, they did know what was going on because, frankly, it was... You know, I couldn't have a budget unless they agreed to it. 
The issue of relations with number 10 has been thrown into the spotlight again following the resignation of Sajid Javid, who never got to deliver a budget because he was unhappy at demands from Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings to fire his entire team of advisers and instead share some of the PMs. Norman Lamont is not impressed. It does seem to smack of control freakery. You know, the Chancellor has got what is it, 1,200 people in the Treasury advising him for his two special advisers. Is that really the end of the world? Something like this has been tried before without success. Harold Wilson hoped his Department of Economic Affairs would become a rival to the Treasury. Michael Hesseltine did the same with his Department of Trade and Industry. Even Vince Cable thought his business department was equal to the Treasury under George Osborne. And I have a lot of sympathy for the situation that Sajid Javid, who was one of my Treasury Ministers, found himself in. You do need to have a kind of good relationship between number 10 and number 11. I think the Chancellor has to respect the fact, as I always did, that they're not the Prime Minister. They're indeed not even the First Lord of the Treasury. Uh, But at the same time, a Prime Minister is only effective if they have a strong Treasury delivering for them. And, you know, my observation about this government And indeed, my observation about the Theresa May government is that in both cases, the prime ministers seem to be suspicious of the Treasury. That ultimately, in my view, was one of the undoings of Theresa May. It doesn't have to be the undoing of Boris Johnson. If he neuters the Treasury, then actually it will also neuter number 10. But, you know, even Dominic Cummings can't run the country by himself. And again, even Dominic Cummings needs the Treasury because, as I'm sure he's found out already, number 10 just doesn't have the resource or the developed expertise. Poppy Trowbridge, though, thinks it might work. I think this government's entitled to do it their way. There are risks, and they've been pointed out by lots of people before me. Now it's very much on this single unit, this, the government, number 10, to get everything right. Even faced with a last-minute crisis like coronavirus, there's a limited amount that could be changed in the days before the budget. In 2010, George Osborne introduced the Office for Budget Responsibility, an independent body to make growth projections and scrutinise the budget plans. So really the budget is done by the Friday beforehand. And then you've only got two tasks. You've got to write the speech... Uh, that makes it all coherent. I used to write the speech myself over the weekend. And second, you've got to try and make sure that it doesn't all leak because every journalist in every newspaper from the Evening Standard to the Times is trying to get hold of the budget story. And what I used to do is, you know, stuff it full of stories, leak out a few ourselves. Don't worry, not market sensitive or anything like that. Uh, just to keep the, you know, the lobby, the, the Westminster village and journalists fed. Newspapers are complete suckers for the handout. I mean, I, by the way, try, now I edit a newspaper myself. I don't like doing this and I try and tell my team not to do it. But, you know, this kind of story given to the lobby at five in the evening from number 10 or the Treasury, which they then put on the front page, is very lazy journalism in my view. And chancellors love it. One of the most notable, if not visible, pre-budget announcement during the Osborne era was literally small change. I remember one of our biggest successes was when we had, you know, all sorts of challenges in our budget. We announced a new one-pound coin. I was about, and, I was about to ask you about the one-pound coin. <laughs> that was Everyone brilliant. Them, but, yeah. Everyone went like mad for the one-pound coin. Well, by the way, I think the one-pound coin is very beautiful and lovely. I'm not sure it's the most important thing that happened that year. But you wouldn't believe it with the way that uh, the, the lobby ate it up. The morning itself involves a lot of waiting. As Ed Balls remembers. And then you have this weird period where there isn't actually anything to do. The speech is done, everything's printed, all the briefing lines and press releases are done. 
Gordon's main obsession then would be what tie he was going to wear, because that was always particularly important to him. The office obsession would be what all of the ministers would walk out of the door. And then there was this long, long wait. Poppy Trowbridge agrees that choreography matters and the powerful ministers in charge of the nation's finances would spend the morning practising how to walk in a straight line. So you have to remember budget day comes after two months of sleepless nights and seven day weeks. So by the time you get to budget day, everyone is already exhausted, but must look their best and be absolutely at the top of their game. You have to remember there are 6,500 photographers outside from all different newspapers or television stations. And it's really important that they get what they've come for, which is a chance to highlight the big event of the day. So you practice with the team inside, lining up in the right order. You make sure you count enough, you know, whatever, 20 seconds, 30 seconds to give everyone a chance to get their photographs. And then believe it or not, you have to coordinate how everyone steps off the pavement, heads back in. Otherwise, it could look quite disorganized. And I think by this point, people have come to expect a really slick show on the day. And if you don't practice it, even though you think you've seen it a hundred times, you might forget a small bit of it, but not necessarily waving around the box per se. Then when the moment comes, the door of number 11 swings open and the Chancellor emerges holding aloft the famous red box. Every Chancellor had used the same one, first used by Gladstone. Callaghan used a new box briefly, then Gordon Brown arrived in 1997 and wanted to strike a note of modernity for new Labour. Gordon decides rather than using the red box every other Chancellor has used, he would have a new red box made by apprentices at Fife Dockyard, I think it was, in his constituency, which is a, a wonderful idea, but he was supposed to put the speech in it and then the key got lost and it was all kind of like a bit of a catastrophe. And in the end, I think the general view was go back to the old red box. But I think, did Gordon practice standing holding the red box in his front room before going down? Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> and I think what he was probably most worried about was whether he'd chosen the right tie. In 2007, Alistair Darling revived the original Gladstone box and when George Osborne arrived in 2010, he couldn't wait to get his hands on it. Having spent five years as Shadow Chancellor trying to get there, I was told by the Permanent Secretary that it was too fragile to be used again, even though it had been used for the last 150-odd years. I, was, I thought that was absolutely ridiculous and I was going to have my moment with the Gladstone budget box. So I, I struck a deal with the National Archives, who were looking after the budget box for some reason, that I could use the box one last time. There was one problem, which is the country had lost the key to the box. No one could find it in the treasury or whatever. So inside the box is supposed to be the speech. That's the whole point. You go out and you show the red box to prove you've got the speech because there was some chancellor in the past who forgot to bring a speech. And that's the whole tradition. But when I stood out there on the first budget, I had no speech in that box. It was an empty box because uh, uh, no one could find the key. And what about when in 2015, Dali Alexander, the Lib Dem minister, posed outside the treasury waving a bright yellow homemade budget box? Well, I thought it was quite sweet. Norman Lamont didn't practice waving the box around, but he is clear about what was inside it. There's a famous story told by William Haig, who was once an advisor to Norman Lamont, that during one budget, he held the budget box up and it contains not his speech, but a bottle of whiskey. A great story, 
sadly not true. It turns out Glanstone's box wasn't big enough for a drink. It is absolutely tiny. You couldn't get even a half bottle of whiskey inside there. You might be able to get a miniature in there. <laughs> that's about all. I think this story was uh, invented by William Hague as part of his very successful speaking on the after-dinner speaking circuit. So to the speech itself in the House of Commons, one of the most closely watched events in the political calendar. Norman Lamont. You are conscious of what are the key moments and you are very sensitive to the audience reaction. And sometimes you'll think, oh, they didn't notice that <laughs> or they missed that or my goodness, I didn't expect them to react to that. Getting to the point of delivering the speech can be a tortuous process as Ed Balls discovered when they first arrived in the Treasury. The very first budget speech Gordon did in July 1997 I mean, this was the first Labour budget for 18 years. And Gordon had worked on the speech with his speechwriters for weeks in his room. He would type on his computer and there was a big TV screen so everybody could see what he was typing in this big interactive conversation. This is a kingdom united in name only, was his first line of this State of the Union type address. And, um, but he didn't put any of the measures actually in the budget, in the speech. And I said to him on the, the day before, I said, you know, you're not mentioning we're raising cigarette taxes by 17p. And he said, well, why do I want to mention that? I said, well, because it's happening at six o'clock and if you don't tell people, they might feel kind of a bit annoyed. Separately, the Treasury speechwriter who had done this for the last few years to Ken Clark, and I think they'd basically given Ken Clark the speech the day before, he'd made a few pencil markings, had separately written a whole budget speech. So we discovered the day before the budget, there's two speeches, one written by Gordon, beautifully written, but no measures, and a separate one with no rhetoric or message, but all the measures. And what are we gonna do? Because she said, well, this is the speech. And I said, there's another one. So we basically came up with this method. We got all the senior treasury and revenue civil servants into a different room. We would go into Gordon at his computer and say, page one, are you willing to say this? He would make markings. I can't say that. That's ridiculous. And then we would go through back to the officials. Gordon Brown was not the only one to sometimes leave things until the last minute. Poppy Trowbridge again. It's a final cup of tea. It's a final run through of the speech. It depends on whether the Chancellor gets their speech done well in advance or not. We often were working on it in the car over to the House of Commons. One thing that Philip Hammond in particular became known for were his jokes. Many members of the House keenly remember the last budget delivered on a Monday. It was 1962. I was six years old. Tensions between Russia and the United States were rising, and a former foreign secretary turned chancellor delivered a budget amid cabinet revolt. Mr. Deputy Speaker, I am acutely aware of the phenomenon of false memory, but I could swear I remember my parents turning to me and saying, Philip, one day that could be you. Or at least things that looked and sounded like jokes, even if they lacked the critical characteristic of necessarily being funny. He's actually a very, very funny man. And he would often, I'd say he wrote most of his own jokes. And sometimes it was our job to suggest that he could do (laughs) the right, I'd say the right number of jokes at the right time. Norman Lamont also once tried his hand at humour. Well, there was one year when I introduced a tax. It was described as a tax on mobile phones. That was how it was described. It was not a tax on mobile phones. It was an attacks 
on employers who lent phones to employees. The employee had to pay the tax if, if they used their business phone for personal purposes. This was described as a tax on mobile phones. And I did very unwisely, I think quite spontaneously, say, I hope restaurants will be quieter as a result of this tax, <laughs> which did not go down well. Ed Balls wasn't convinced that the budget was to place for gags. Jokes in politics are really important as a way of binding your team, putting the, uh, the other side on the defensive, self-deprecation. In my personal view though, budget day is probably the one day when they don't actually tend to work. It's a serious event and you might have something which makes people smile a little bit, but I never felt that Philip Hammond's joke telling really worked to his advantage. Still to come, how do you spin the budget to journalists asking tricky questions and why it's important that the morning after the Chancellor has got clean trousers. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Once a speech has been given, the spinning can begin. Journalists leave the press gallery overlooking the Commons Chamber to a briefing area just outside. There they gather for a huddle, literally just grouping around the Chancellor's two media spokespeople. The Chancellor's political advisor, which was my job, along with the civil servant counterpart, bring our binders with every fact and figure about each and every policy. We place them down on a table and you look up and you see a sea of up to 200 journalists looking at you, all with their tape recorders out and crowded, you know, within half a foot of your of your nose. So it's quite an intense, busy, pressurized environment. But but honestly, it's it's exciting. And Matt, sometimes that can go on for up to two hours, two and a half hours I did once. And it just depends on the number of journalists there. It's like cramming for an exam, really. You got your binders and your post-it notes and your little stickers that tell you where things are. Surely there must be times when you just want to tell the journalist to just bugger off, stop asking stupid questions. I, I can see what you're getting at, but honestly, no. It is their job to ask questions and it is my job to know the answer and to communicate the government's message on various policies. Key to making this a success is ensuring the Treasury experts are on hand to help. The Treasury got used to this idea that they worked really hard on the budget, but on budget day, there'd be this big party at number 11 for all the civil servants, which is really nice. Other than the fact that, because it was a new Labour government and the media wanted to give us a hard time, the budget would land in the middle of the afternoon and suddenly 
there'd be all these questions, problems, it's unraveling, what's the answer? And Gordon would be saying, we need to know what's going on with this. And I would say, well, we'll find out the answer and we'd say to the private office, where the experts, they'd say they're all getting drunk in number 11. <laughs> it's a nightmare. So we had to agree for the second budget that the budget party would be moved back 24 hours. So everybody worked the day after the budget uh, and didn't, didn't go and kind of celebrate until we'd done 24 hours of aftermath. On the day of one of Gordon Brown's budgets, the Sun newspaper had come up with the idea of working out what it meant for White Van Man. Not a theoretical person, but an actual reader who would drive up Downing Street with his van emblazoned with the amount he would be better off. So we think, well, you know, this is not without risk, but this is quite a good idea. But we need to know a bit more about the guy. And so we got in touch with our head of welfare in the Treasury and phone calls were arranged. And the White Van Man had driven it from South London and he was driving sort of round... Parliament Square and up and down the embankment while having long conversations with our team in the civil service about his particular personal circumstances. I was sort of dealing with the first hour after the budget, talking to columnists, trying to kind of make sure we deal with any problems. And suddenly a very white civil servant arrives in my room and they said, we've got a very big problem. And they said, well, this white band man, we've gone into details on his circumstances. I don't think he's claiming everything properly. There's some issues about residency and, you know, I mean, we've got a real issue. We don't know his name, but we've got a real issue about whether or not he's, in fact, you know, breaking the law. I said, OK, leave this to me. And I then had to ring the Sun journalist and say, look, we've got a bit of a problem. We don't know this guy's name. I don't know if you do, but if I were you, I'd ring him and tell him to drive south very fast and forget this ever happened. And he might then want to check whether or not his tax and benefit affairs are in, in order. Because I'm afraid... Sun white van man is benefit cheat. <laughs> it's not going to work to anybody's advantage. Philip Hammond also had some post-budget problems one year in what Poppy Trowbridge refers to as a wardrobe malfunction. The morning after the budget, the Chancellor traditionally visits somewhere outside London and stands in front of a single camera to do back-to-back -back interviews on breakfast TV. He must be looking his best, even if it means aid staying up all night washing his trousers. He's got to be ready to go from about 6.30 in the morning. One year we had a, an instant wardrobe malfunction in a restaurant where a waiter had spilt something on, on his knee. And so we had to quickly find, of course, there's, we were in the countryside and there was nowhere to have it cleaned. And it's just not something you expect to find yourself doing at two in the morning on the day of the budget. But that's part of the fun of it, the unpredictability. The successes and the gaffes fade from the memory, but every chancellor has their own favourite budget. Norman Lamont again. My best budget was my last budget, which was wildly unpopular, but it was the best one because it uh, gripped the issue of the deficit. It was, I think, the biggest tax raising budget that there's been uh, probably since the war. I mean, it eclipsed even what Geoffrey Howe did, but we had gone into a recession. We had a deep uh, deficit. This needed to be uh, grasped as a nettle. The only uh, awkward thing was the main beneficiary was Gordon Brown. Having inherited that booming economy, Ed Balls recalls the highs and lows of a decade in the Brown Treasury. The most exciting one by far was the first one in 1997, first Labour budget for 18 years. We'd worked for so many years to get to that point. The most challenging economically was 2000. We were showing that we could borrow to invest. And the truth is the, the numbers have been too good and we'd had surpluses. But we actually wanted to increase investment and we had to 
to, to show that you could borrow for investment and still be credible and meet your fiscal rules. And we pulled that off for years, but that was um, a challenge. Most important budget though, I think, the most memorable for me, the most significant was 2002, which was the budget where we introduced a tax rise, national insurance rise for the NHS, began a five-year period of huge increases in net health service investment. We'd won the argument, I think, that tax finance was the best way to go through a national health service rather than trying to privatise it to a private insurance model. Previous governments around the world, left of centre governments, had been forced from time to time to raise taxes because they were in trouble. But this was a budget where we were choosing to do so for a public service with public support. George Osborne also prefers to remember the long-lasting reforms. I look back at things like the sugar tax, the pension reforms, the cut in the top rate of income tax in 2012, the 2010 budget that got the finances back in order. You know, and those, in a way, the kind of things that the, 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 the chatter on the day tends to die down over the years. And certainly I take more satisfaction from the kind of big reforms. I asked if, looking back, he has any regrets about ploughing ahead with austerity, given its social and political impact since. I think we made essentially the right judgment call, which was the country was in a huge mess in 2010. The people who were going to be affected by that were the poorest. And that's what happens when you have a big financial crash. And countries which moved quickly to sort themselves out would be better off than countries that didn't. And we did. And we had more growth than anyone else and indeed the government I was part of helped create more jobs than any government in history. Now that's all, that's the record. I, you know, of course, people are always going to complain that not enough money is spent on things. But I think if we hadn't acted, the country would be in a very worse situation than it is today. And the people who would have suffered were the poorest. So what advice would these old hands give the new chancellor as he prepares to make his first budget? Norman Lamont. The day I became Chancellor, the FD described it as a poison chalice. Um, not sure whether I survived the poison or not. <laughs> I think the thing you realise too is the Chancellor gets the blame or the credit for however the economy is. But in fact, the economy has very little to do with what he does. It's his successor who enjoys or suffers what he did. And you're always the victim of what the person before you did. George Osborne urges his successors to make the most of whatever time they have. Well, I used to get all the former Conservative chancellors together and we would meet every uh, year. And I would speak to Alistair Darling. I didn't speak much to Gordon Brown, sadly. <laughs> that, not only because he, you know, he didn't want to speak to me. I, I guess my advice to any chancellor, there's been three now since me, is you don't know how many budgets you're going to have. And... You'll never get that time again when you're the chance exchequer in Downing Street. And you should really make those budgets work to do great reforms that you're proud of later. And I look back on things like the sugar tax and the pension reforms uh, and, the, and the getting the finances on as big reforms that I'm proud to be associated with. The budgets I'm not so enthusiastic about with hindsight are not things like the pasty tax budget where it went wrong, but the kind of budget maybe in 2011 where I didn't do very much and I, I twiddled my thumbs a bit. It, it's a great moment. Most chances only get two or three or four budgets. So Rishi, I hope he gets as many, you know, many, many budgets, but he should use every one coming his way. All chances love an element of surprise, but Gordon Brown took the final flourish to a new level. He always wanted the um, line at the end, the rabbit out of the hat, 
which kind of would confound the other side and make our side cheer. This is a budget for Britain's families. This is a budget for fairness. And this is a budget for the future. And I have one further announcement. With the other decisions I have made today, we are able to hold to our pledge made at the election not to raise the basic rate of income tax. I will from next April cut the basic rate of income tax from 22 pence to 20 pence. It is, it is the lowest basic rate for 75 years and I commend this budget to the House. It was something George Osborne had to do himself. I was always told you don't need to have the big reveal on the day. That's all too theatrical and cartoonish, essentially. It's absolute bollocks. If you don't have something good to announce on the day, you're absolutely dead. Rishi Sunak, you have been warned. I commend this budget to the House. I commend this budget to the House. this statement to the House. So that is how you put a budget together. My thanks to George Osborne, Ed Balls, Poppy Trowbridge and Norman Lamont. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, from me, Matt Cholley, it's goodbye. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts.